0: And this is Datacast, join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of DataCast. And today I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Alexey Grigorev. Uh, Alexey lives in Berlin with his wife and son. Uh, he's a software engineer with a focus on machine learning. He works at uh, OLX Growth as a lead data scientist. He is a cargo master, and he also has written a couple of books. One of them is called uh, Mastering Java for, for Data Science. And uh, now he's working on another one called a Machine Learning Bookcamp. So Alexey, uh, glad to have you on the show.
1: Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, yeah, so I want to start our, our conversation talking a little bit about uh, your educational background. I saw that you study uh, information system and technologies from Far Eastern State Academy in Eastern Russia. So, uh, you know, would you mind quickly going over your uh, undergrad experience? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, I am from a very small city in far east of Russia. So, A city with uh, 70,000 people. For Russian standards, it's a pretty small city. Um, I was pretty bad at school, so I was uh, worse in my class. My grades were bad. All my classmates, who had better marks, they moved uh, after uh, after school to some other cities to study, like Vladivostok, St. Petersburg, Moscow, with good universities there. But uh, since I wasn't studying really well, so I just... uh, Somehow ended up in um, in the local uh, university. This university, if it has any rank, it's um, at the bottom. Like it's first from the bottom. So it, uh, I don't think anyone knows this university. Anyways, at university, I somehow became interested in studying. So I really somehow realized that uh, math is actually interested, interesting. That programming is also interesting. I ended up in a math club where we were solving some mathematical problems and also in a college team for ACM ICPC so this is a programming contest uh, contest our team in this challenge never managed to get good results but it was an amazing experience just to, to be able to uh, to participate in this uh, in these competitions so even though my university wasn't known anywhere my teachers uh, they're good but also maybe the content wasn't up to the best standards i still managed to learn a lot from to, uh, during my studies I, I was pretty satisfied with uh with the outcome um and for me i think uh, even if the content wasn't up to date so for me it was uh, i realized that it's important to take initiative talk to teachers ask them but how about this thing can i try this topic, can I study this language instead of this, what you're suggesting? And teachers uh, were pretty happy about this. They really loved it. And uh, for students who took initiative and learned themselves, the uh, like me, that was a really positive experience. And uh, so I think uh, what matters is not uh, the university where you study, but uh, what you want yourself take from the university. Try to enroll in uh, activities outside of classes like math clubs, programming contests student conferences, things like
0: that. Awesome, yeah, and it seems like you pick up a lot of um, interest in, like you already mentioned, math and, and uh, coding uh, during your mm-hmm. time in college. So uh, after finishing your college, you, um, you start working as a Java software engineer for the next three years uh, with a string of companies, uh, including Auriga, Intech, and Loksoft in, in Russia and Poland. So you know, can you comment on your uh, experience working at, at this space?
1: As I said, I'm from a small city and there, after graduating, um, like the only possible option was to work at university or with some governmental structures. So after graduating, I moved to uh, the European part of Russia. There, the job market was quite hot. So it was just enough to to show motivation to get hired. So for junior positions... They would check like if you're really passionate about the topic and then that was enough to get hired because I was hired as a Java developer without knowing Java at all. So they would just ask basic questions and basically that that was enough. So this is how I got, how I became a Java developer. So they hired me without any Java knowledge, but somehow it was, it didn't really go well for my first job. So I didn't live up to expectation and um, was fired from my first job. It was uh, an interesting experience for me to, to think uh, to think about uh, what I want to do, how I should behave um, at work. Anyways, uh, the next company, uh, I was luckier. There, actually, I could own an entire project end-to-end from like, back-end, front-end, deployment, all these things. So mine, my second job was uh, a lot more productive and beneficial for me. Probably some experience I learned on my first job. At some point in Russia, we actually have a mandatory military service. So all males have to serve military. And at some point I got a note from the military service saying that my country needs me. I had other plans. So that's why I needed to sneak out from the country. And this is how I ended up in Poland. So in Poland, I worked uh, for Luxoft. So this is an outsourcing company. So my actual place was uh, Sviz Bank, not uh, Luxoft. And Luxoft was just paying money. So that job uh, involved um, moving millions of XML files from one queue to another. So just get a queue from some um, uh, stock exchange, mostly in New York or Chicago Stock Exchange. Do something with this, transform it. Convert and then put to another queue. So I was basically dealing with tons of XML files. Around that time, Coursera course came out about machine learning, and I watched it. Uh, and I realized that this is what I really want to do. So I'm tired of doing XML, I want to do ML. And uh, from them, I really became interested in the topic. As
0: you mentioned, well, up to those, those couple of years, being as a Java a developer, in 2013, you you decided to um, pursue a master program called IT4BI, which is a program that specialized in large-scale business intelligence. And this is a joint program by uh, three different universities in Belgium, France, and Germany. So, yeah, what is the prim- primary uh, motivation behind this uh,
1: decision? Yeah, so, as I said, I became pretty interested in machine learning. And the, around that time, also positions, uh, data science positions appeared in Europe, but most of these companies uh, didn't know what they want to, what they what they need from data scientists. And typical interview for a data science position during that time was, hey, all our data scientists have PhDs, but you don't seem to have one. Maybe join us as a Java developer and then in a couple of years we'll see how it goes. I had only a bachelor's degree from my college, so I thought, okay, like, if it, this is what it takes to, to work in with machine learning, uh, then I should do this. But since I have only bachelor, I had only bachelor, so the next step would uh, be to to get masters. So I was looking for a masters program with uh, scholarship uh, scholarships in Europe. So I applied to quite a few of them, six, seven perhaps. I got accepted to two of them and uh, selected this ID for BI. Back then. I didn't really know that uh, business intelligence and data science are not really the same things. So both had data uh, part there. So I thought, mm, okay, so this is related. And then in this program, so the the first two terms were in Belgium and France. And then the third uh, one and fourth were specialization. So for me, specialization was uh, large-scale business intelligence, which uh, was in Germany. And this is how I ended up in Berlin.
0: And... Um you know, take a look at, at that, and uh, I believe during your, your master program, you, uh, when you were at, at Berlin, you, uh, you briefly worked as a research assistant at uh, one of the research group Podima group at U Berlin. You know, how did this opportunity come about?
1: One of the classes I attended at the uh, Technical University of Berlin was uh, called Scalable Data Mining, and there we study things like Hadoop, uh, Spark, Flink and we were implementing some machine learning algorithms. And actually, this DEMA group, the one that um, the teachers uh, from this class were from, one of the teachers said, hey, we need uh, research assistance to help help with our research on Apache Flink, because the DIMA group, they are the original creators of Apache Flink, and they needed uh, help to, to work on this project, to improve, uh, to do some research on this. That sounded interesting, for me uh, because I could contribute to open source. So this is something that I can do, something visible. And this is how I ended up working there for six months during my studies. Um, the work I was doing there was implementing um, some leg- linear algebra operations in uh, uh, Apache Mahout. or mm-hmm. how, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's uh, basically a Java library for machine learning. And uh, this Apache Mahout can y- use Either Splink, uh, either Spark or Flink, to like it actually delegates some of the operations to to these libraries, and I was taking uh, care of um, the Flink part. So it was really nice thing to have in my portfolio after graduating, like uh, a committer to Apache Mahoot, like to an open source project. I am really glad I had this opportunity to work there.
0: I see. And and, and just a quick note for people who are not familiar with uh, Apache Flink, can can you keep a just a brief Yeah, sure.
1: So. This is basically um, a framework for uh, scalable data processing. So this uh, framework can scale to multiple computers and then process data in parallel and do things like uh, transformation, joins, uh, um, things like that and uh, in a a reliable way. So this is like, uh, it's very similar to Hadoop or Spark, uh, except that Flink can also do this on the fly. So when you have a, a stream of data, And then you can do some transformations just on the fly. And then Flink makes sure it's done in a reliable way.
0: I see. Interestingly, you know, also during your time at at TU Berlin, I noticed that you were part of a group that working on a paper that is called Semantification of Identifiers in Mathematics for Better Math Information Retrieval. And this paper actually was later presented at the SIGR conference on uh, R&D information retrieval back in 2016 um, yeah so can you talk more about that
1: yeah uh, so this was actually my master thesis so this is how my master thesis involved uh, so my master thesis involved into a paper after I graduated so the name is a bit difficult to to understand like what this is about so but the, the goal of this paper is to improve search in scientific documents. In scientific documents, we have a lot of mathematical formulas and we wanted to somehow understand what these formula- formulas were about. So suppose you have a f- uh, formula like E equals mc squared and then somewhere in the text uh, below the formula, we have definitions like okay, E stands for energy, M stands for mass, C stands for the speed of light. So what we wanted to do is somehow extract these definitions and map them to know that E stands for energy. And then for each document, uh, we knew what the, were the identifiers there, the definitions. And with this information, we could uh, search in a database of uh, scientific documents. Like We could basically search using formulas. And also we could use this information to, to link documents uh, together. Of course, we tested everything on Wikipedia because this is one of the largest available um, corpus with, uh, with mathematics. And this was my thesis. And after my thesis was done, I, I already graduated. I was already working full time. Uh, we took some time to, to finish this. Um, uh, my advisor and I took some time to, to finish it, to wrap it up and publish it as a paper. And luckily it got accepted. So which uh, for CGR is quite difficult because this is a pretty highly, uh, like it's highly ranked uh, conference. So I'm really glad I agreed to, uh, when my advisor suggested to, to publish a paper.
0: Okay, thank, thank you for sharing that, yeah. So after, after finishing your master program, you work full-time as a data scientist at uh, Search Metrics, which is a SaaS platform that drives online revenue and elevates brand. Well, first of all, how did you uh, get this job? And you know, what were some of the projects that you work on during this time?
1: So, as I said, I initially thought that uh, I would need to get a PhD to actually work as a data scientist. But by the time I graduated from master's, companies realized what they need from data scientists so they realized they realized that they don't need uh, somebody with PhD PhD is a nice uh, to have thing but not a must Um, and turned out that uh, many companies were very happy to hire somebody like me with experience in software engineering commits to open source and uh, also projects like my master thesis and a couple of course projects I did uh, during my studies so that was actually enough to get noticed uh, in a couple of places. And so I didn't really have any difficulties. It was 2015. So the, back then, it wasn't already difficult to to get a job, at least in, uh, in Europe. So I ended up at Searchmetrics. So this is like a SaaS platform that drives online revenue, which actually means uh, it's a search engine optimization company. So they... Um, what uh, the main business of search metrics is tracking keywords in search engines. So imagine that you're a big uh, company, online company like uh, eBay. You want to know how certain keywords perform, how you perform for certain keywords. For example, for eBay, let's say they want to see if you type shoes in Google. Uh, eBay wants to know when you do this, at which position eBay is. So when you type shoes, so let's say first position could be amazon then ebay then I don't know craigslist whatever so they want to track they have uh, i don't know thousands of uh, keywords and then for each of these keywords they want to know how they how well they their pages do and that is the main business of search metrics providing this information for the um, customers um, but they also in addition to that uh, we're doing content marketing so content marketing is uh, uh, not just tracking how, you, how well you do in search engines, but also creating content that does well in search engines. And there, my job was to help copywriters. So, a copywriter um, is somebody who writes articles, uh, blog posts. Uh, a typical uh, work for a copywriter is they get a task, like, let's write uh, 1,500 uh, words about cheese or whatever topic. And what they do is they go to Google or any other search engine, type the topic, cheese, and then they do research. uh, They analyze the content of uh, existing pages, the the pages that uh, rank highly on Google. And they check what these pages actually talk about. And then they try to reproduce. They try to create a content that is similar to these pages. They talk about similar things. If they do it, pages usually also rank high in Google because they try to mimic what is already performing well to also perform well. Uh, and my job, the service, the model I was working on was helping them. So it was actually analyzing uh, content, like for a keyword, it was analyzing the results from search engines. And my model was trying to determine what is relevant to the topic and what is not, and what should be included to, to score high on Google. So for example, for cheese, it could be nutritious, nutrition value or Know, uh, like just basically says if you want to be relevant on this topic you need to include these, these and these words this number of times so that was the uh, project I was doing uh, most of the time at CertMetrics
0: After search metrics, next job is for another data center uh, at a company called Simplex which is an ad company in the real-time meeting space um, with two different products um campaign optimization, as well as uh, supply side yield optimization. During the time that you have designed develop and maintain the machine learning infrastructure for processing more than 3 billion events per day with more than 100 million unique daily users. Uh, yeah, so what are some of the unique challenges associated with uh, building out that uh, infrastructure?
1: Yeah, so, f- first of all, in uh, advertisement, the amount of data is huge. We had to process like terabytes of data per day, five, ten terabytes of data. This is not the volumes I was used to. At Search Metrics. we needed to deal with far smaller data sets. Being able to process this data in time and reliably was the main challenge. And for me as a data scientist, I needed to, to make sure that I can create models under these constraints. So somehow I ended up being in charge of uh, putting together the infrastructure for processing this data so this data can be fit into models and models can be trained and then we can apply the models there. So every hour we would uh, process all the data that was generated for the previous hour, train a new model and push this model to the services that were doing advertisement um, and basically repeat this every hour. So for me, the main challenge was that I never needed to deal with uh, anything like that in my past. So I never needed to deal with uh, such big volumes. And also, it involved a lot of data engineering. Many things were new for me. So, for example, with uh, this amount of data, uh, we were using Spark. And Spark jobs required a lot of tuning to actually work properly to not fail constantly. And uh, learning all these uh, bells and whistles of Spark was also a challenge for me. And then also orchestration, auto-scaling, using spot instances to to significantly reduce cost. So I didn't know anything of that and uh, basically had to build it from nothing. That was a very valuable experience for me. And later, I found out that uh, data scientists who can do that, who have these engineering skills, Become quite valuable. So, in addition to knowing machine learning, also being able to to use these models and push them to production and build these uh, data pipelines, this turned out to be quite um, valuable on the job market. So, doing it increases the value, the market value of uh, data science significantly. And most of the people now, they by now know what they want from data science. Data scientists, so they don't need a PhD papers they often need people who can train a model and then do it end-to end from collecting the data to training the model to actually deploying it so this is uh, trying to build a similar system is uh, was a very valuable experience for me and I recommend trying to do a similar thing to to every data scientist
0: I see and yeah it's also like this data engineering practice that, yes. that learned from your simplex was very useful because you um, yes spent a lot of time kind of uh, learning all these different infrastructure and, and pipeline technologies and I, I would assume that this is a very um, personally uh, b- busy time for you just kind of like obscure your knowledge and, yes. and, and learning different
1: things. But it um, paid uh, back tremendously.
0: I believe around you know 2017-2018 you also put a lot of time participating in cargo competitions. What were some of your favorite competitions?
1: First of all maybe I'll tell you why I did this because uh, when I was studying I I heard about Kaggle, and then I thought, okay, like, this doesn't really seem interesting for me. Like, okay, some competition, what's the point? But then at Search Metrics, I was uh, lucky to work with a colleague who was really into Kaggle, uh, and he convinced me to try, to give it a try. So there was a competition, he just uh, started competing, and then he suggested to try together. I initially didn't want, but then he convinced me, I agreed. That competition was text competition, so the, there was a database of questions and answers. So for each question, there, was, there were four answers, and the task was to select the correct answer. When I tried, uh, when I attempted to participate in this competition, I realized that everything I studied previously, that I studied at university and uh, in online courses, was pretty useless for this task. So I felt completely unprepared for that and in general for doing any practical machine learning uh, in competition settings, uh, it felt like I don't know anything at all. Hopefully I had uh, this colleague who helped me and uh, I tried to understand it, like I understand it, that I have lack of uh, experience doing this practical machine learning. I tried to take part in every competition during that time to somehow learn how to actually do this, to, um, to do feature engineering, how to uh, select uh, the best model? How to tune parameters? How to set up a validation scheme? Um, all that wasn't emphasized during my studies, and I had to pick it by uh, participating in competitions. So it took a while for me—this uh, um, this six, uh, even more than six months—and then eventually uh, I took part in one of the competitions where I scored. Uh, my team scored the gold medal. So gold medal is uh, finishing in top ten of a competition. It was a competition on duplicate detection. So there you have two advertisements and for each pair of advertisements the goal was to predict whether this pair is a duplicate or not. We ended up on fifth position, I think, which was pretty good. This is how I got uh, Kaggle Master. After that, uh, I started to compete less because uh, like this knowledge, it accumulates but then with every new competition, um, the return on investment on time on invested time is probably less and less with time, so I my interest faded eventually. But like the the things I learned on Kaggle, that was uh, when it comes to practical machine learning, it was very useful and it helped at uh, my job. Uh, it helped at uh, job interviews. It also helped me with uh, my GitHub, so that I had a good portfolio to share and to convince potential employers. Like here are the things. Um, I did myself, so it paid back a lot.
0: Outside of cargo, I I saw that you also participated in other competition at um, academic conferences. I believe you you got like a second place at the Web Search and Data Mining 2017 Challenge on uh, vandalism Detection. And you actually even wrote a paper about it. And then uh, you also got first place at the uh, NIPS 2017 Challenge on ad placement. So can you um, share the, the stories behind them?
1: Actually, the reason I was uh, taking part in academic uh, conferences, at least academic uh, competitions, is uh, that Kaggle became a busy place. It was very difficult to compete because it was so popular, and in other platforms like for academic uh, conferences, it was less competition. With Kaggle, it's very time-consuming because of other people. Like every time you wake up, you look at the leaderboard, and you realize that your position now changed. Like dropped 50 places so in other platforms it's more relaxed so maybe instead of 1000 2000 people it's maybe just 50 or 100 it was possible to stay sane and take part in these competitions <laughs> anyway so one of the competition i took competitions i took part was uh, this vandalism detection so let's say you have a, a website like wikipedia and everyone can edit a page there and some people don't use this uh, properly. They made edit a page and then add some swearing or incorrect information and there are people, moderators, who have to review that and when they see swearings, what they typically do is they roll back the edit. So the goal of this competition was to do something similar but for Wikidata, quite similar platform to to, uh, Wikipedia. And the dataset was uh, a bunch of gigantic XML dumps from Wikidata, I think it was uh, half a terabyte when uncompressed. So it was quite challenging to actually transform this data and uh, prepare it, uh, extract features from it, and then train a model on top of that. That's why actually uh, not uh, a lot of people took part. Uh, many of them were not able to, to process this data. And I saw this as an opportunity because uh, I had the skills to process large amount of data. So I decided, okay, this is something where I can do well. And then at the end, I used a simple model. It was a linear model, not an ensemble. With this approach, with good feature engineering uh, and the simple model, uh, I was able to do well in this competition and get a second place. And then I decided not to stop at this and also write a paper, talk at conferences. The other competition was about advertisement, ad placement. It was basically selecting the relevant advertisement for a user. When a user opens a website, we want to show them a relevant art. So how to select what is the most relevant. And the challenge there was, again, to to process a lot of data because in advertisement, uh, as I mentioned earlier, so the, the amount of data we need to handle is uh, it's just too much. And uh, interesting thing about this competition was uh, the libraries uh, for training models that I used were too slow. So training a simple linear model would take a couple of hours, like two, three hours. And then tuning this model was very difficult. Like how would I, like I would need a few days to actually select the parameter, for example. I knew that for large data sets, uh, there is a good model called FTRL. It's a great algorithm. I didn't find a good uh, implementation that was uh, fast enough for Python. Uh, So I implemented it myself in C and then uh, I used this library for, for Python and it gave me a competing advantage because now I could uh, train a model in a couple of minutes instead of a uh, few hours. So I could iterate very fast and basically this is how I ended up on the first place. And this, actual, uh, this library was pretty uh, useful outside of this competition. So this is something uh, later uh, we used at work to train our models. That's, that's
0: uh, fascinating to hear that... Um you wrote your own implementation. Sounds like your, your, your experience with data engineering have a lot in yes. uh, participating in this in, competition, in, in right? But bring very relevant and practical skill that will um, mm-hmm. be able to give you some, some advantage compared to other people.
1: So it also happened to be competitions with a lot of data. Uh, so I guess that was uh, one of the advantages I had perhaps over other data scientists who maybe didn't have these uh, sort of skills.
0: Also in 2017, you wrote a book called uh, Mastering Java for Data Science, which teaches readers how to create data science applications with Java. So uh, what has been your experience writing this book?
1: My main uh, experience was uh, I understood that writing books is very difficult, a lot more difficult than, um, than I imagined. Uh, but the feeling of uh, finishing writing a book is uh, also quite nice. Um, But the reason, actually, I started doing this at Searchmetrics, we quite actively use Java, but there were not so many good resources about Java and machine learning on the Internet. But I knew both. I knew Java and I knew machine learning. So I thought it's a, a good niche area to fill because there are not so many resources. So if I create a good resource on this, then I can fill this niche. In retrospect, the area was too niche. So not too many people use java for machine learning at least now so maybe a few years back companies were still trying to use uh, java but now um, the trend is that basically pack your models uh, you use python and then you put them in a separate microservice um so right now java is not very popular but i'm anyways uh, glad that i wrote this book it was very nice experience trying to to express myself and also do this uh, over a long period of time uh, and actually which resulted in uh Uh, a printed book that I can put on a bookshelf and uh, (laughs) look at it. And it also looks nice on my CV.
0: Yeah, it it does help with your credibility. Yes. Um, In the latter half of 2018, you transitioned to a new uh, data scientist role at uh, OLX Group, which is um, a global marketplace for online classified advertisement. What urged you to make this career
1: move? OLX was quite visible in uh, Berlin, so they People from there were doing really cool presentations uh, on conferences. After seeing these uh, presentations, I really felt like I want to work with these people. And at some point, my classmate uh, from IT for for BI moved to Oyelix, and then I talked to him, and he described it as like uh, the best place he ever worked at. And then he suggested me to to refer me to. Uh, to a position, uh, to a data science position. What is more, this position involved uh, deep learning, which I didn't have any experience uh, with. So this is something I wanted to to learn and be better. And eventually, it worked out. I managed to pass all the interviews, and uh, I joined Alex.
0: You've been working at OS group, you know, since since late 2018 until now, yes. and uh, you uh, actually have written a lot of work, uh, uh, different blog posts talking about different projects that uh, you've been involved with there. One of the first projects that you work on was uh, detecting duplicates of images being submitted to the OWX marketplace, which you presented at the PI Data Berlin 2019. You actually have written two articles describing how this duplicate detection system work on Medium, I believe, and the first post present a two-step framework for duplicate detection, and the second post explain how your team surf and deploy this framework at scale. Yeah, so, you know, can you unpack the details of designing system, including sort of the, the different phases of identifying the problem, collecting the data, engineering the features, creating the model, as well as uh, deploying and maintaining it in production?
1: First of all, maybe it's worth mentioning that, like how this problem actually appears. Um, so since we are online marketplace, so this is where... People come when they want to sell something. Like they want to sell an iPhone, they come to us, they create an ad. But to get more visibility, what they can do is uh, create the same ad multiple times. And then of course it spams the platform. So for people who want to buy something, they come on our platform, and when they see the same ad repeated multiple times, don't like it, of course. Another issue with duplicates is sometimes uh, fraudsters, uh, people who want to cheat other people. They take a copy of uh, other ads and create it themselves. So they they see somebody selling iPhone, they steal the pictures, they create a new ad with the same pictures, with similar description, but with a more attractive price. And then people want to buy this iPhone because the price is so good, but the fraudsters uh, try to convince them to pay some deposit, saying, hey, like there are 10 other people who want to get this phone, but if you give me $100 now, I'll keep it for you so basically uh these fraudsters were cheating good buyers and of course it's quite bad so we started to get uh, complaints about this and the first thing we did is we need to understand how serious the situation is uh how often it happens so we took uh, a dump of one month worth of data of listings and did some preliminary analysis I will not tell you exact numbers, but we concluded after this analysis that the problem is indeed uh, serious, that we actually need to, to invest time, and move forward and solve this problem. Since I also was doing... Uh, I took part in Kaggle competition about detecting duplicates. Uh, it somehow happened naturally that uh, I was working on this one as well. Um, because I already had many ideas how we can actually address this problem, what kind of features we can extract, how we can use images, how we can use titles, how we can use descriptions. But the real problem there was uh, not machine learning again, but the infrastructure, how we actually use this to process uh, 1 million listings per day and 10 million images per day. Um, So we started with a simple approach. Using some simple uh, image caches, uh, some simple features, tried it on a small market. It worked. And then we tried to gradually add more and more markets. uh, GoSoilix, I didn't mention it, Uh, but we have market presence in many countries. Uh, There are countries with smaller presence, like South Africa or Pakistan, and there are countries. with a lot of users like Poland or Ukraine or India. So we started with small markets and then gradually we added more and more markets. And uh, each time when we added a a new market, we wanted to make sure that we can still cope with the load. Mm. So as I said, features were pretty simple and then we uh, gradually improved uh, what we had. And the way we used it, uh, so when uh, our service says that this new listing has a high probability of being duplicate with uh, some old listing, then the system can uh, either automatically reject it, so it will just not appear on the platform, on our marketplace, or it can send it to moderators. And moderators are people who manually view listings and then they make the final decision. Because in certain cases, it might not be a duplicate for many reasons. It might be a genuine ad. And then uh, it's uh, a human who makes the final decision whether uh, something should go live or not, but of course we want to automate this process and uh, take a lot of thought of the of the human
0: yeah and i will be sure to um, i think include the, the link mm-hmm. to the talk and to the show notes. so people would want a chance to kind of like um, dig deeper if they're interested in you know the, the, the different uh, tools and technologies mm-hmm. that um and you use to, to process them at scale. Another uh, prominent project that you were also recently involved with was building uh, an infrastructure for, for serving image models. And you have written a two-part blog series of this um, evolution of image model serving at LX, including, I believe, the first part talking about the transition from AWS SageMaker to Kubernetes for model deployment, and the second part talking about the utilization of AWS, Athena, and MXNet for design certification. Yeah, so uh, can you unpack the details of this evolution, including the different um, experiment with with the model serving options, the challenges of making the final infrastructure work, as well as the future direction when, let's say, you have to incorporate new models?
1: So we started with a few simple models. So first model that uh, we wanted to to have is uh, uh, we wanted to detect uh, image quality. We wanted to know if uh, an image is properly framed, it has good exposure to light, it's not blurry um, because if you imagine when you want to buy something, for example a car, you want to have a clear picture of a car, so the car should be properly centered, it should be. Uh, it, should good, it should have good light, it shouldn't be blurry. So we wanted to detect that and if a seller tries to, to upload images that have problems, quality problems, we wanted to, to tell them, hey you have some problems, here, how you can solve it. In this part. The second model we had uh, was uh, a general categorization model. So it's like predicting what is on the image. Is it a car, is it a bike, is it dress, or many other categories. Of course, when we wanted to apply these models at our scale, it was problematic. Basically, we needed to have a proper infrastructure. We needed to get the image from our image store, uh, pre-process it, uh, save the results, and use that uh, in the product to make decisions. And uh, since we needed to do it for 10 million images per day, uh, we needed to do it fast, a reliable way. So that was pretty difficult. First, we experimented with AWS SageMaker. So in AWS SageMaker, you can basically just deploy your model and then it takes care of auto scaling uh, and all these difficult things, um, and it worked well, but it was quite expensive uh, to use. So using SageMaker was three four times more expensive than uh, just usual um, usual computer, usual server. Um, so eventually, because of The cost, we eventually moved everything to our Kubernetes cluster. Of course, it required some work to to move this because SageMaker was a managed solution, but here we needed to to deal with many things ourselves. As the project grew, we started uh, adding more models, and this system that we built uh, eventually became sort of a platform for uh, serving image models. Uh, We tried to make it very easy to add new models. And right now, with our infrastructure, it's possible to do it uh, just a matter of uh, days instead of uh, weeks or months like previously. So this is quite a big project. I think it's very difficult to describe it in words. But if you're interested, uh, please check the uh, blog posts. Um, I'll also be talking about this in, uh, at a conference soon. This conference is called Berlin Buzzwords. Uh, it's, it happens online uh, this year. In June.
0: So it sounds like, you know, there's so many different criterias that go into uh, choosing a, a good option for model deployment, right? Not yes. just the ease of usability, but also the, the cost, the business cost. Very interesting. You know, what are some of the uh, model serving tools in the infrastructure ecosystem right now, you know, besides uh, AWS and Kubernetes that you uh, also uh, recommend for people who are checking it out, you know, for ML engineers who... Interesting. Yes.
1: Right now, one promising uh, tool is Kubeflow, which is basically, uh, it's built on top of Kubernetes and it uh, allows to deploy models, So do things similar to SageMaker, uh, but then you use your own Kubernetes cluster and uh, then it's cheaper. Um, I played with this. we didn't use it in production, but it looks quite promising. And many com- uh, many companies, tech uh, g- giants, they are now adopting it. So it's com- it's coming from Google, and many big names are using this, and uh, it looks promising. So this is something uh, I'd suggest to to have a look at.
0: Well, let's get back to uh, outside of work. You you know you continue putting a lot of uh, investment in time in kind of self learning and, and communicating with the broader distance, data science community, I believe, and. Uh, at the moment, you are in the process of writing a new technical book called uh, Machine Learning Book, camp, uh, which encourages readers to learn machine learning by doing projects. So, what is your motivation for writing it, and uh, what are some sample projects that uh, readers can learn?
1: So, I remember this feeling when I first tried to compete on Kaggle, and I felt really lost. So, all this theory or all this uh, I spent a lot of time watching online courses and lectures at my uni, university, but uh, like it was all not helpful at all to, to, uh, to apply like when I wanted to apply to real-life problems. So I always try to keep this in mind. And uh, I understand that uh, the problem with this traditional approach is uh, at university, we often focus on uh, the solution, not the problem. So, like, here's the models that you can use. Like, you can use uh, uh, logistic regression, you can use SVM, you can, like, basically just talks about models. So we talk about solutions. But when we need to solve a practical problem, then we might be lost. So that's why I wanted to, to base my book on projects uh, and actually first show the, the problem and then walk through the solution. So. To sort of reverse it. Um, and I think this approach works uh, very nice for software engineers, for people like me, because uh, this way, when we focus on the problem, we don't get into too many details. Because with machine learning, it's very difficult to focus because there are so many things we don't know. But if we focus on the problem, uh, on solving the problem, we don't dig deep when we don't need it. And this is what I try to to do in my book to basically work through the solution and show how to take care of a of a project end-to-end. So it, it involves uh, looking at the data, training the model, and then also deploying the model afterwards. Um, some of the projects uh, there that are right now are already available. First project is predicting the price of a car. Uh, And then the second project is uh, churn prediction. So this is identifying if uh, customers uh, no longer use uh, the services of our company.
0: And uh, I assume that the audience can mostly technical data scientists and ML engineering.
1: Yes. So the idea is to, the target audience is uh, software engineers who are interested in machine learning. Mm -hmm. And they try to make it easy for them to understand all these concepts. And um, I assume that uh, people who read my book already uh, know how to code, at least have some exposure to programming, not necessarily in Python, but I use Python for the examples. And then by the end of the book, the readers uh, will have uh, a portfolio that they can already show to potential uh, to employers.
0: When do you uh, expect to, to finish it?
1: Well, hopefully this year. Right now, it's a bit difficult to focus on this uh, while working at home, but I'm trying my best to finish it by autumn this year.
0: Listen to the show can also get a, get a discount. Uh, I'll put the discount code uh, from Manning into the show notes so people can you know, uh, get, get the um, early access version and, and get the full version once Alexei is, is finished with, with the book. So you, uh, you recently gave a talk I found on YouTube called Getting a Data Sun Job which uh, sort of cover the different components of the data science interview process. As, as a seasoned interviewer, what elements of the process that you have seen
1: candidates struggle the most with? Typically, an interview consists of a few rounds. So for a data science position, it's usually theory, like when we talk about machine learning, like things like what's the difference between uh, random forest and gradient boosting machines. So usually data scientists don't have a lot of problems with that one then we also have a coding round so which is basically here is a a problem solve it with python and then there is a a round with behavioral uh, questions like tell me about the time when you did something so what i see that for data scientists the most difficult part is coding so i've seen many candidates with uh, excellent uh, cvs but they struggle with implementing simplest algorithms this is very unfortunate because I think coding is very it's quite an important part of our job and we really have to test candidates uh, we need to check the ability of uh, candidates to code what I would recommend is to uh, to practice that before interview and in general uh, try to have pet projects uh, and code as much as uh, you can and I also put together a bunch of interview questions so one of them is about coding or for Python, so I would recommend to to look at these uh, questions and try to to solve them. Um, Other area is um, behavioral interviews, so it's like, uh, tell me about time you disagreed with your manager, in this, uh, like similar to these ones. It's also possible to prepare for these interviews. Like usually, you just need to think about all the situations at work you had, not necessarily at work. So perhaps for people who are just starting, just graduated from university, can be situations uh, in college. If you watch the video, you'll know how to actually prepare.
0: Looking a little bit deeper into the resources that you put together, so for people who are preparing for interviews, put together a very uh, neat GitHub page that uh, includes both the theoretical as well as the technical question. Uh, you know, include a bunch of uh, you know resources on ML t- theory and you know uh, you know and data structure. According to question, uh, yeah, can you um, can you share some of the topics that you that was being covered in, in that? And uh, how can people contribute?
1: It all started for me, like I just thought that uh, the resources that I know about interviews, they are like when I Google data science interview questions, the question I see they have nothing to do with reality, often sometimes there are good resources but often often like the top page from google sometimes it's uh, not great so i decided that i should uh, somehow create a good list and then for theory it's uh, usual things like uh, questions about linear models tree based models uh, how to relate models uh, questions about neural network so it's again things like how is random forest different from gradient boosted trees. I also what I added is I grouped these questions by difficulty. Like what are the easy questions, what are the medium uh, questions, what are hard questions, um, and then I released these articles. And I got a lot of um, questions. Like people uh, reacted well to this uh, to these articles, so they really liked it. But I also got a lot of questions like, hey, now you have questions, but we want answers as well. I didn't want to put answers, because I think uh, if I prepare questions and then answers, people will just memorize it, and then uh, I don't think it's useful. On the other hand, I kept getting these messages, like, hey, how about answers, how about answers? I thought, since so many people want answers, maybe there are some people who would be willing to to write these answers. So that's how I created this GitHub repository. And I just put questions there without answers. Uh, and then it was amazing that uh, how community reacted to this, and people started contributing the answers as well so it 's somebody who is preparing for the interview using these uh, questions uh, they would take time and uh, actually fill in the uh, in the questions um, so it's it 's nice it 's a very nice resource, but um, still you should handle it with care because the answers are given by the community, and I still recommend to work through all the uh, questions and answers uh, yourself when you uh, prepare for the interview. Yes, and then the... so these are technical questions. Then there is... oh sorry, theoretical questions, but then there is also technical questions, things like uh, SQL, Python algorithms. And this is the part where data scientists struggle most, especially Python part. So I would recommend to, to have a look and then try to solve these uh, problems without looking at the solution first. Uh, And then there are solutions already for some of the problems, and of course, um, feel free to contribute. And the way you contribute is like with any other uh, GitHub repository, you just uh, clone it, you put the answer there, and then create a pull request. And then uh, I usually accept the pull request within uh, the same day.
0: Great, yeah, thanks for the very specific instruction on how can uh, you know people can can benefit and and uh, give, give it back to to that resources? Okay, so uh, kind of starting to, to wrap up a little bit. Recently, I, I saw in your LinkedIn post one of the posts uh, you posted a while back. You um, give an argument on on how to become a better data scientist. So you said that there are a couple ways um, you know to do so. Number one is to uh, move fast and be pragmatic. Number two is. To be product oriented and learn how to manage expectation. Number number three is uh, to never say not my job. And last lastly, number four is to you know learn to get into infrastructure. So you know, would you mind extrapolating on on this point?
1: Yeah, sure. So to me, being pragmatic uh, means uh, being oriented on the result. So it's focusing on the problem rather than solution. Um, so I see that many data scientists, they think about machine learning immediately. So they, if you have a hammer, everything is a nail. And to me, pragmatism is uh, recognizing the situations when you don't need a hammer, when you need something simple. So try to start simple, often without any machine learning, like maybe just a simple heuristic, and then iteratively, iteratively improve this solution and learn from the feedback on each iteration so start simple then product oriented this is when again you think about users first so you always keep in mind the user in mind and uh, you think about the user not about machine learning uh, algorithms so i think product product oriented people they are quite pragmatic in this uh, way so they concentrate again on the Problem, not in the solution. And uh, I think the important thing here is always ask why. So why are we solving? Why are we using this tool to solve it? How our users will benefit uh, from this? Uh, How they will use it after we solve this problem? Also, managing expectations. This is what I see product managers often do. I think this is very important, especially with machine learning because people expect a lot of things from machine learning. And we should always be clear what machine learning can do and what what cannot do. So we should learn this from we should learn these communication skills from product managers and try to to actively use that in our job. Then the third point uh, was uh, never say not my job. So I think we should try to step out of our direct responsibilities and to be proactive there. And especially when it comes to model deployment, I think this for data scientists it's uh, a pain point. Uh, so this is something that many data scientists struggle with, and it's very easy to say, "Hey, I'm not uh, taking care of model deployment because we have so many software engineers, uh, DevOps engineers. They will take care of that. I don't need to know how to do this." So I would advise not to, not to say that. So try to be involved, even if there are people who are whose job is to do this. Uh, I would suggest to be actively involved in t- in that and try to take end-to-end ownership of um, the projects and then go the extra mile and deploy the model. And this is basically the fourth point about getting into infrastructure, uh, because while there are people who train to do this, these people are often very busy because there are many people who who need help, and being able to use tools like Kubernetes, Terraform, and other like AWS uh, is quite beneficial and makes you independent. So you don't need to depend on these people, wait till they have time to help you. You can just go ahead and deploy your models yourself.
0: There's a report last year from one of the consulting organizations that said that close to 85% of machine learning projects fail to deliver intended promises to the organization. In order to actually get ml products into the business practice into making actual impact there's a lot of hurdles and mm-hmm. also the fact that you know data science and machine learning is still uh, a relatively um, new field there's, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of misunderstanding from especially from leadership on how to effectively organize the projects it seems like you know this framework that that you provided here uh, encouraged the so called you know uh, ML expert to be proactive and really take full ownership of uh, making sure projects can, can, can be successful. Yeah, and, and hopefully over time, some, some of that mindset that, that you provided can, can become much more standardized towards the, the whole field and other people can, can learn all, all that knowledge, have, have the resources to learn all that knowledge to prevent failures of, of ML products.
1: You summarized it uh, nicely.
0: Uh, reflecting on your career thus far, what would be your advice for software engineers who want to make a switch to data science?
1: Yeah, well, uh, read my book, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things uh, I would suggest is don't jump into details. Uh, so this is the mistake I did. Um, so I thought I needed to study everything to actually to be able to use machine learning. Um, so don't do this. Uh, so try to stay focused on the problem. So first, come up with the problem, and then Find the solution to this problem. And then this will keep you focused on what you want to achieve. If you don't do this, you'll see, okay. SVM I don't understand how it works and then to understand how SVM works you need to take two years of calculus one year of uh, convex optimization and uh, like when you see things like slack variables or Lagrange multipliers it makes uh, it for sure made my head spin when I saw this and then I thought okay so much to study Um, and and when I think like if you just focus on the problem so because you already have some data set that you want to play you don't need to go too deep into these details so if you focus on the Stay focused on the problem. It, it helps. Of course, at some point you might need to go into details, but uh, uh, not at, at the beginning. Not when you just want to make a switch. Uh, probably at some later point.
0: I really, really want to one your point you provided earlier about be pragmatic and be product uh, oriented. It seems like yes. uh, a lot of those skill set uh, from from product management, right? Yes. That uh, engineers it can can learn from. Just just learn how to have customer empathy and and you know understand the outcome, how this product being used. Uh, certainly helpful, you know, so get out of that technical mindset a little bit and adopting a more a broader product and design mindset could be helpful. Yeah, and reachable, right? Um, <laughs> okay, so, so finally, given your experience speaking at um, various conferences and meetups in the area, how would you describe the data science community in Berlin?
1: Uh, so, there are quite a good big conference in, conferences in Berlin. So, one is PyData. Uh, And the other one is Berlin Buzzwords. So I know these two. So others are smaller. I really enjoy going to these conferences and seeing what people talk. So the PyData one is more focused on data science. Berlin Buzzwords is more focused on uh, data engineering. But So there are many topics related to machine learning. Um, Of course, there are many meetups. Uh, I don't even know how many. It feels like every month there is a new meetup happening somewhere. So it's probably one of the most active communities in continental Europe in uh, European Union. It's Berlin because I think it's, um, of its startup scene there are so many startups. I think it still has a long way to, to go to catch up communities, for example, in New York or London or Moscow. But I'm quite happy to to see to see the, to be a part of this community and to see how it's evolving. So I think uh, it still has a lot of potential, but what I see uh, right now I would like.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Just, just out of curiosity, so earlier in your, in your life, in your career, you're from Russia, now you move to, to Germany. Uh, what, what is the difference in terms of world culture as well as sort of the uh, technical capacity of people in Eastern Europe, let's say uh, Russia and Poland versus in, in Berlin, uh, in Germany?
1: Oh. Well, the, the first thing is uh, Germany is quite multicultural, so there are so many different people. In Russia, there are very few companies that have... Uh, foreigners working there, and by foreigners, uh, I should, like, there are foreigners, but I meant uh, foreigners from, uh, so not ex-Soviet Union, but from, you know, Europe or the Americas or Africa, so we don't have that many people in Russia, and this is the main difference, because in Germany, I have to deal with, uh, at my work now, I have to deal with so many people. So uh, I guess uh, nothing can compare with New York, like uh, San Francisco in the States. But it's uh, quite multicultural. This is also a challenge for me uh, as a Russian. I'm used to one way people behave. uh, But when there are so many different nationalities, uh, it's very difficult. Um, So that's uh, one of the things. But culturally, if we talk about Germans and Russians, I think uh, there are many similarities. So, I feel quite comfortable living in Germany.
0: Yeah, it seems like um, Berlin is one of the tech hubs in Europe, and tech matter people can, if they're seeking future uh, careers in, in, in Europe, then they can choose just Berlin as a, as a good option.
1: One um, nice thing about Berlin is uh, it's so international, and you can move uh, to Berlin without speaking a word of German. And I've been here for five years, and I've feel a little bit ashamed that I still my German is quite bad and because you can get around with just English for quite long and companies use English of um, course when you need to to get some document then you need to speak German but uh, English is uh, enough for most things yeah that's my be
0: your next challenge learning German
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> okay so so Alexei at this point of
0: conversation I want to move on to the final closing segment uh, in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid fire questions and then you can just keep the answers for, for the listeners. Question number one, name three people in the data science universe whose work you really admire.
1: With three, it's difficult. Well, I can for sure name one, Andrew Ng, the founder of Coursera. After watching his course, I realized that I really want to do machine learning and the way he teaches, the way he talks about difficult concepts is amazing. So if I can name anyone who... Who had influence on my career? That's him. With other two, I, to be honest, uh, I cannot compare with. Uh, so on. it's different scale. So I don't have other names. Sorry.
0: A lot of other people also mentioned Andrew Mink as as um, someone they admire. So um, you know, definitely agree on that. Question number two: Name one book that you would recommend for people to develop um, a better engineering mindset.
1: So one of the things that, uh, one of the books I found very useful for me is designing data uh, intensive applications. So this is uh, like, if you want to be better at uh, data engineering, this is the book you need to read.
0: Yeah, I believe that is from uh, O'Reilly, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Because uh, has a name or like a pick.
0: And then lastly, imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
1: How to stay focused on the problem rather than the solution. So i think this is uh, it resonates with me so like when you want to get in the field you should not dig deep uh, so staying focused on the problem helps so i would say focus on the problem not on the solution
0: fantastic i think that's a that's a, that's a brilliant way to um to end our, our conversation so yeah alexa like i I really enjoy, you know, learning a bit about your background in uh, starting from from being a Java developer into um, your interest in machine learning and how you, throughout your journey of uh, working on projects and and participating in different competition uh, to becoming a data scientist. A lot of interesting insights on the whole end to end process of building data pipeline, building models, creating models, deploying models into, into production. And a lot of that and, and that knowledge of understanding the, the ML infrastructure is, is very important for you know, people who want to pursue this career in the next few years. And I'll uh, be sure to include it, um, most of the uh, information that we discuss here in this competition, including your GitHub repo on latest interviews in the show notes, as well as the link to the, to the book you, you, you're currently writing so that people can have a chance to um, to review, contribute as well as get some information uh, from that and even contact you if they have any requested. So yeah, said I enjoyed this uh, and uh, I hope you had a great rest of your day.
1: Yes, I also enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. Well,
0: that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today, you can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now!